take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, if you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1001. Um, In a couple of weeks, I will begin my ninth year at First Scott's. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. But one of the problems with being in one place for so long is that you know me. And you know that I tend to move very, very slowly in our study through the books of the Bible. And so after five years in Luke, that's a fair assessment. But some of you, more than a few, have come up to me in the last couple of weeks and said, oh, we're starting Hebrews. How many years are we going to be there? I feel so judged. The answer is, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I know this, though. We're going to stay in Hebrews as long as it takes for us as a congregation to get it. Hebrews is all about setting our eyes on the glory of Christ. And so I trust that we will be in this book as, as long as it takes for us to get it. For us to, to have that natural muscle memory of taking our eyes, lifting them up off the circumstances of this world and off what's going on around us and fixing them upon Jesus Christ. We studied that last week in the ascension that Jesus is seated there and we are seated with him in heaven. That's our home. That's your true address. And so it makes sense for us to occupy our hearts and minds with the glory of Jesus Christ that believers are going to behold for all eternity. Before I read this opening passage, I want to pray that God will help us throughout this study, whether this study be six months or six years, that he would help us to be captivated by the glory of this Jesus who loves you so much. Let's pray. Father, we have so many distractions in this world. So many things that vie for our attention. But only one is worthy. Only one is worthy of our eyes. And it is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, O God, that you would take our eyes and lift them off the distractions of this world and give us even just a glimpse, some refracted beam of his glory. We know that we can't behold it all, this side of heaven, but we long to see what we can here. And so help us, Lord, as we work our way verse by verse through this book to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of 
of the majesty on high. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to imagine that you're pastoring a church in the first century, let's say about 30 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And you're pastoring a group of believers who have come to faith in Christ after a lifetime in Judaism. They've left behind the beautiful temple in Jerusalem, and now they're worshiping in homes and in graveyards. They've left behind the intricate system of priests, and now their entire religious system centers upon an invisible high priest. They can remember the daily and weekly and annual sacrifices that they left behind, all the visual and even the smell of it, the sounds of it. They can remember all of it, but they've left it behind, and now they offer no sacrifices because Christ has been sacrificed once for all. They've left the comfort of being part of the status quo religion in Israel. They've left the status of being in the majority, and now they're part of a small, marginalized sect that is beginning to be maligned daily and is starting to feel the heat of persecution. And you're shepherding this flock, and you watch them as one by one, sometimes by group, they begin to grow jealous of what they left behind. These people have professed faith in Christ, but like their forefathers 1,500 years before who were delivered from slavery in Egypt and then they started to miss the leeks and the garlic that they had there while they, wa- they, they missed it while they wandered through the wilderness, these people started to long for what they had left behind, a very visual religion. And some of them are leaving the church that you're seeking to pastor. Others are complaining, why don't we do this? Why don't we have sacrifices? Why don't we do the Passover anymore? Why why don't we have the things that we had before? And, And they grow discontent and they think, you know, we had it so good. Now all we just have is is the preaching of the word and we have this invisible high priest, Jesus Christ. And the visual and the respectable and the memories of the past are so alluring to them that they're starting to think this new covenant is no better than the old. And they're starting to go back. That's the setting of this book. Now, you're that pastor what would you do? What would you say to your people? Would you rebuke them? Would you heap tons of religious guilt upon them? 
Would you just let him go and write them off? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't heap them with religious guilt and he doesn't write them off. What this pastor does is something so unexpected. He ravishes them with the beauty and glory of Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about. A people who were thinking about leaving all that they had in Christ because they longed for what they left behind, the physical, the visible, the symbolism that they once had. Hebrews is such a unique book. It doesn't start like any other book in the New Testament. Typically, the letters of the New Testament, they begin with an identification of the author and a greeting. Hebrews doesn't start like that. It goes right into it. And I think there's a reason. I don't think Hebrews is a letter. Now, if you look in your Bible, there's probably a heading at the top, at the the front of Hebrews that says the letter to the Hebrews. Your editors added that in by tradition, but I, I actually suspect Hebrews was not a letter at all. It was probably a sermon. And you'll see that as we work through it in the months ahead, that, that it has many similarities to sermons. It may be a series of sermons that have been compiled and transcribed and distributed for the church to read. And, and so I'm going to argue that, that Hebrews is a sermon written by a broken-hearted pastor who is watching his church be discontent in Christ and some wander away. I suspect that's why we don't know who the author was. But here's what we know about him. He's a faithful pastor who loves his congregation very much. Despite the fact that they are, like we just sang, prone to wander. They're so prone to wander. And the reason we know he's a faithful pastor is that again and again throughout Hebrews, he's going to tell them to fix their eyes on Jesus. He's going to tell them in various ways, fix your eyes upon Christ. You see, that's the job of a pastor. If you ever wondered, do I have a good pastor? Ask yourself the question, does he show me the glory of Jesus Christ? This is a good pastor here, and his aim in this book, or if it was a sermon, his aim in the sermon is to fill his people's vision with Christ so that they would see that Christ alone is sufficient to save them and Christ alone is sufficient to satisfy the hearts of these people for whom he died and whom he still loves very much, even from the throne in heaven. And this pastor is reminding them again and again, even as their hearts are allured back to those old covenant signs and symbols, he's reminding them that the sum and substance of it all is not a system and it's not a building. It is Jesus Christ. The cornerstone of Christianity is Jesus Christ risen and ascended. And so the author's aim, and he's very clear just in chapter 12, he tells us, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Take your eyes off of these earthly, worldly things that are so hanging you up and so distracting you and set your heart upon Christ and you will be ravished by him. You will be in awe of him. 
And these things of earth will grow strangely dim in his light. That's going to be my aim for you as well as we work through this book, that your eyes would be fixed on the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. That you would be able to say after every successive sermon, Jesus is even more wonderful than I thought. We're going to begin that journey today by looking at three things from these three verses. First, we're going to look at the superiority of Christ. We're going to see that really in verse 1 through the first part of verse 3. And then we're going to look at the salvation of Christ that we see in the latter part of verse 3. And then finally, we're going to tie it all together and we're going to see the satisfaction that Christ alone can provide. So that's where we're going, the superiority of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and then finally the satisfaction that Christ alone can provide. So the first thing this dear pastor wants his beloved flock to see is the superiority of Christ. Now, why is he wanting to do that? Well, if they are wandering, if they are leaving, going back to the old covenant, going back to Judaism, they must think that that was better. They must think that what they left behind was better than what they have right now in Jesus Christ. And so they're thinking back and they're being allured by all the visible trappings of Old Testament Judaism and the social standing that they had while they were there. And what he wants to say to them is all of that with the symbols and the ceremonies and the sacrifices, all of it was merely a foreshadowing of what Jesus was coming to do. You know, it's always been a problem for God's people that they look to outward visible symbols rather than what those symbols mean. God gave the temple. He gave the sacrifices. He gave the priesthood, all of those things, not so the people would make idols out of those things, but so that the people would see that Jesus is the true temple, the once for all sacrifice, our great high priest. God's people have always struggled with that. We want the external and the visible when God has given us something far better in our great high priest whom we cannot see right now, but we will behold for eternity in heaven. And he's saying to them, don't look elsewhere thinking you can find something better than Jesus Christ. Don't look around thinking that you can go back to these Old Testament systems and find something better. Because in fact, Jesus is better in every way than the Old Testament, than everything about the Old Testament. And so Hebrews is going to work systematically. We're going to come next week. Jesus is better than the angels. And then Jesus is better than the priesthood. And Jesus is a better sacrifice. And Jesus is a better... And it's just going to go on and on. Because none of us hold Jesus in as high esteem as we ought to. We do not realize how wonderful he truly is. And so he's saying, don't look elsewhere. And then he starts giving them several examples of how Jesus is superior. He starts by saying, Jesus has spoken a superior word. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in, very, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now that's incredible. Because of sin, God owed us nothing. He did not owe us one ounce, one word of revelation, 
about who he is. Sin could have come in and God could have remained silent for eternity. But he spoke by the prophets. Literally, the Greek, I think, better reads, he spoke in the prophets. He spoke through these these Old Testament heroes. And, and, And he spoke it through them to his people. And those were good words. Pastor Walton's been preaching through the prophets. Those were good words. But those were incomplete words, weren't they? The Old Testament ends like a movie that you get to the end and you're looking for some resolution, some conclusion, and all you end with is a cliffhanger so that you have to come back and watch the sequel. That's, That's how the Bible is. It ends with a cliffhanger. When is this Messiah going to come? And so the Old Testament is wonderful. The prophets that God spoke in are wonderful. But you know what? In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. If it was good to be spoken to by the prophets, it is more glorious to be spoken to through his son. He's saying to them, now God has finished the book. So don't abandon the ending. Don't go back to the Old Testament, leaving the New Testament behind. In fact, you should read the Old Testament In light of the New Testament, it is the thing. Jesus is the one that makes the Old Testament make sense. When it says last days here, that's referring to a period of time. It doesn't just mean recently. It's talking about the period of time from the ascension of Christ until the return of Christ. That is the stage that we are in in redemptive history. And so this this dear pastor says to them, God has spoken his final word to you. The next thing you will hear from him, the next major event on the redemptive stage will be the trumpet sounding and Christ returning. And so don't long for more. Be content with this word that you've been given. Why would you go back to the Old Testament when I've given you my son who has spoken to you? He's given you what we have now, the 27 books of the New Testament that tie it all together, that make it make sense. And so verse 1 makes clear Christ gives us a superior word. And then this dear pastor shows us that Christ is superior over all powers. Look at verse 2. It says he's the heir of all things. That means all power and all authority belong to Christ. All power All authority belongs to Christ. Now, remember in the Old Testament, remember in the creation, God gave Adam the duty of having dominion. He he was to be authoritative there. But Adam forsook it, and he gave himself over to the dominion of sin. But Christ conquered sin. He has dominion over it. And so he's the heir of all things. And he's third, he's superior over the entire creation. Look at verse 2. Through whom he created the world. Verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This dear brother is saying to them, Beloved, it's foolish to worship these earthly things, this earthly tabernacle, when the one who created the earth has given himself for you. 
This pastor was convinced that the same person who had lived and walked among them was the very one who had created and sustained them. And when it says Christ upholds the universe, certainly it means that Christ is upholding every molecule in the universe. How he does that, I have no idea, but he does it. But really it means more than that. He's the one moving the universe forward towards its purposes. Satan's purpose is to undo it, to make a wreck of things, but what God is doing in redemptive history is restoring all things. And so Christ is is upholding this universe until the day that he returns and he restores all things. That's known as the palingenesis, the new creation or the new genesis. And Christ is building his church till that point. Why is this pastor so adamant that his people understand the superiority of Christ? Is he just building Christ's resume, trying to make Christ look better than he really is? No, that's one of the wonderful things about being a pastor of the gospel, is I don't have to dress up Christ to make him look good. He is infinitely good. This pastor is saying to his flock, that this superiority, the excellency of his nature can only mean one thing. Christ is God with us. He's the fulfillment of God walking with them in the cool of the garden. He's the fulfillment of the promise to Isaiah of Emmanuel, God with us. And so this pastor is saying you don't need all those outward symbols and trappings of Old Testament Judaism because Christ is here. And he lives with you and in you. And then he goes on in verse 3. Listen to this. This is amazing. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know, divine glory is depicted throughout Scripture as a blazing light. It's a light that is so brilliant that in the first four days of creation, there was no sun. It was the light of the glory of God that lit up the universe. Now, why did God put a sun in in his place? I think the sun is a dim stand-in for the glory of God. Because if we beheld the glory of God, unveiled it would melt us it would destroy us it is something that shines infinitely more brightly than even the sun and so the sun is a dim stand-in for the glory of the creator god now that's amazing isn't it and one day that same glory will chase away all darkness there will be no light there will be no lamps there will be no sun in heaven because he will be our light. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. There is no more glorious statement. There is no higher accolade that could be given with the English language than that. God's glory is the sum total of all his perfect attributes, the beauty of his character, his moral purity, And the author of this book is saying all of that radiates forth in Jesus Christ. 
all that is in God radiates out of this God-man. Separating God from Christ would be like trying to separate the sun from its light. It's impossible. What Christ radiates to our eyes in the pages of Scripture and by His Spirit are God's wonderfully diverse yet perfect attributes. I'm going to quote the Puritan Stephen Charnock. I wish more people wrote like he does, but listen to Listen to what Charnock says of Christ. He is light without darkness, love without unkindness, goodness without evil, purity without filth, and all excellency. Like the sun shines forth its brilliant light, Christ shines forth the effulgent glory of God. This means that as we read the scriptures and behold the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we are getting the greatest possible glimpse of who God is this side of glory. But it isn't just in those attributes that we see the amazing glory of Christ. You know, the glory of God would be bad news for us if Christ only reflected the justice of God or the power of God, or the righteous anger of God, then Christ's glory would have melted the earth the moment sin entered. But in Christ, we see something, we behold something that even the prophets, even the angels could not have dreamt up. That in Christ, we see the grace of God incarnate. So in Christ, we see not only the one who is superior over everything on earth, but we see a heart that is overflowing with grace for our salvation. That's the second way this pastor wants to ravish his congregation, by speaking of the salvation of Christ. Look at the second half of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God is a just judge. And so the guilt, the filth of human sin must be dealt with. Just the way that a judge, if he is a just judge, must deal with the guilt of a murderer. He cannot sweep it under the rug. We would be indignant if we heard of a murderer, but in the good old boy system that sometimes exists, the judge just swept it under the rug. We would be indignant about it. What about a God who would just ignore sin? He would be an unjust judge. Sin is absolute filth upon God's image bearers. And for us to be able to stand with God, to know God, our sin has to be dealt with. It has to be purged. It has to be purified just as when you wash dishes And in order for the dish to become clean, your sponge, your rag has to become dirty. For us to become clean, Christ had to be made filthy. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin. Our sin was lumped upon him. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. What's amazing is that when Christ is there, bearing our sins. That's when we get a glimpse of his glory most brilliantly. 
where did the glory of Christ shine more brightly than when He bore our sins upon the cross? The Son's infinite nature suffered so that our guilt might be removed, our sins forgiven, our consciences purged once for all. That's why Hebrews says you were purified. That's something that 1,400 years of Old Testament sacrifices could not do. It couldn't purify consciences. It couldn't take away sin. There's an amazing word here that, that uh, Hebrews loves, and it's going to hit it again and again, so we'll study it more fully later. But it says he sat down. He took his seat. And that's a contrast because, you know those, those, those Old Testament priests that you're thinking about going back to? They don't get to sit down when they're on duty because there's always more work to be done. There's always more sacrifices to be made. There's always more interceding to do. But Jesus sat down because when he was sacrificed for us, it was once for all. And when he ascended, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why crowds flocked to Christ. Now, not so much the proud, not so much the self-righteous, but the broken. Those who had made a train wreck of their lives, they were drawn to Jesus. Those who had been marginalized by sin and sickness, they, they were drawn to Jesus. The most wretched of sinners in his earthly ministry saw in him such beauty and life. And they were drawn to him because they knew it wasn't a vain beauty. It was gentle, lowly-hearted beauty. They could see this magnificent heart that on the one hand radiated forth the glory of God and on the other hand welcomed us in and said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And it's the hope of that heart that we come to him. It's what the religious leaders rejected about Christ. They thought they could earn their their merit, they could merit their way to his heart. But it's actually through his compassion that we come into his heart. And what a heart it is as as we look to Jesus, as we look away from ourselves and we see this one who hung the heavens in their place and then hung in our place. As we look to him, we see the one who is so holy that thousands of thousands of angels cover their eyes because he's too holy to behold. And yet he makes himself visible to us. As you glimpse Christ in his radiance, then compare your sins with his indelible blood, your need with his all-sufficiency, your faithlessness with his perfect steadfastness, your frailty with his resurrection power, your lukewarmness with the white-hot fire of his love. And as we see ourselves in the light of the glory of Christ, we find him to be exponentially greater and more glorious than we could have ever imagined. The sin of the repentant sinner 
is no match for the risen Savior. One of my heroes was Robert Murray McShane. Scottish pastor died at age 29 but left a tremendous legacy of pastoral godliness. Listen to this quote that he said. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief of sinners. McShane says, live much in the smile of God, Bask in the beams of his radiance. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And rest in his mighty arms. Let me ask you. Flock, have you done that? Have you set your eyes and your hope upon Jesus Christ? We look back at what's happening at this church in Hebrews, and some of them are saying, uh, Jesus is good, but we need a little more. He's not enough. That is not something that anyone who has ever truly encountered the salvation of Christ will say. Because we know that Christ alone can save us. What's so amazing about this is that when Hebrews says that Christ who walked on earth who ate and drank and spoke with sinners who died for our sins when it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God it's saying to us you want to know what the God in heaven looks like the God in heaven looks like Jesus Once a month here at First Scots, we use a creed called the Nicene Creed. It goes back to the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. You've got to remember the early church had a lot of questions that you and I have not had to ask because we rest on their shoulders. The question the early church was asking and fighting over, and there was strong division. The question they were disagreeing about is, is Jesus God or is Jesus like God? Is he similar to God? In fact, in in the Greek language, uh, excuse me, uh, in the original debate at Nicaea, the argument was, is he homoousios? Is he the same substance as God? Or homoousios, the similar substance to God? Now, it was one letter. How big a difference does that one letter make? Well, if Jesus is just similar to God, then it is possible that Jesus showed us all this love and talked about grace all the time, but there's a God in heaven who doesn't feel that way about us at all. That there's a God in heaven who ranks above Jesus and he is waiting for us to get our acts together if Jesus is not God. When Nicaea made their statement we translate it he is very god of very god what we're saying is what we see in jesus is what the god in heaven is like he is the exact imprint of his nature his character is what the original greek says let me ask you a a pastoral question do you ever struggle with believing that 
Do you ever struggle with sort of dividing Jesus outside of the Trinity and thinking, you know, I know Jesus is really gracious and Jesus loves me, but maybe ranked above him or standing behind him, there's a God who's a little bit disappointed and he's waiting for me to get my act together. And I have to earn my way to that God. I have to behave well in order for that God to let me approach him. I know many Christians who struggle with that. Hebrews is telling us here that any God like that is a figment of your imagination. That the God in heaven infinitely loves all who are in Christ. So we need to ask a question. If Christ is the reflection of who God is, and if Christ's heart is so tender towards us, doesn't that melt our hearts? There's tremendous relief in knowing that the God who has seen me at my worst loves me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me, not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is for me. If I forget that, my walk with God becomes a checklist, a list of chores. It strangles the joy out of my devotional life because I think I just have to do this to get God off my back today. Have you ever felt that way? But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus then our goal is not to appease him, but to enjoy him. And our devotional life, our our prayer life, our time in the word is not just checking off boxes, but it's entering into the heart of the Lord Jesus. When I can remember and when you can remember that something as simple as the dying thief's prayer, remember me, that it draws us into the heart of Christ, where our, our souls are transported to heaven, doesn't it melt away pride? Doesn't it melt away aloofness and distance and cold-heartedness and legalism and simply open the door for us to love and enjoy our Savior? Well, that begs another question. If Christ is superior to all those things and if Christ alone can provide salvation... Why in the world would we look to anything else? He alone, this is the third thing, He alone can provide the satisfaction that our souls crave. These Jewish believers were counting the cost of following Christ. Is is following Christ worth losing the temple? Is it worth losing all the social aspects of our religion? All in exchange for a life of persecution? And many of them are saying, no. And you and I can look at them and say, you fools, why would you leave the freedom of the gospel to go back to the shackles of old covenant Judaism? Why would you choose anything over the Lord Jesus? But maybe we should turn that question back on ourselves, shouldn't we? I know none of us are interested in going back to the Old, old Testament, back to the Old Covenant to the systems of sacrifices and priesthood and so on. And even if you could, wanted to, you couldn't because the temple's not there and we don't know who is in the line of Aaron and so on. So Old Testament Judaism is gone. But how often have you and I 
instead of looking to this one who alone longs to satisfy us, delights to satisfy us, how often do we look to other things thinking they can satisfy us more? One author put it this way, when sin came into the world, it was like a criminal that snuck into a store at night, but rather than steal anything, he just changed the price tags all around so that the things that are worthless seem valuable and the things that are truly valuable seem worthless. Beloved, is that not our lives? You and I spend so much time seeking after worthless things, don't we? We look to this world with its wealth and its leisure and its status, its pleasures and its lusts, and we think that that can satisfy us, all the while ignoring the Lord Jesus, the one who ultimately can. And I suspect that sometimes we even look with envy on those in the world who live with reckless abandon. We're not that different from these Christians 2,000 years ago. We don't truly know what it is to fix our eyes upon Jesus because we so easily get distracted by this world. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see very stern warnings not to turn away from what you've been taught. But today, I just want you to see the foolishness of turning away thinking that anything in this world can satisfy your soul better than Jesus because it cannot. Think about the satisfaction we receive when we behold something beautiful. You and I, if we were to make a list of what we think is beautiful in this world, we would have different answers. So one one person might like classical music and another might think country music's beautiful. Some enjoy a sunrise while others enjoy a sunset. We all have different ideas of beauty, but we all love beauty. That's why people pay for tickets to a concert or why they get up early to see a sunrise or why they travel across the country to see the Grand Canyon because we know that beauty brings joy to our souls. Friends, of all the beauties in this world, none compares to the beauty of knowing Jesus Christ. Charnock, Stephen Charnock, that I quoted earlier, all those attributes of who Christ is, he went on to say this. He said, Are not all other things infinitely below him? More below him than a pile of dung is below the glory of the sun. It's all worthless compared to knowing Christ. John Owen was a Puritan. He may have been the greatest of the Puritan theologians, but he also had a very difficult life. He was preceded in death by 10 of his children. He was persecuted simply for seeking to pastor his church. He faced ailing health. Listen to how he dealt with it. He says, A due contemplation of of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all troubles of this life. It is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave us. How does a man who's lost 10 children and faced persecution and all these different things find great joy? Because he didn't look to this world to provide it. He looked to Christ alone. 
It's no coincidence that Owen's the same man who wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin because he knew the thing that could steal his joy most was to set his eyes and his affections on the things of this world, the idols of this world. And so he says, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. What do you treasure more than Christ? What do you look to thinking that it will bring you more joy than Christ can? That it will satisfy you? What's the pet sin that you have sought to keep from others? Or what is it that good thing that you have turned into a bad thing because you look to it for security and comfort and meaning and joy? It can be the best of things. It can be family. It can even be service to the church. My job can become an idol. When I enjoy serving Jesus more than I enjoy fellowshipping with Jesus. If we are not resolutely centered upon knowing and enjoying Christ, then our lives may outwardly prosper while inwardly withering. I say this especially to our graduates. I don't know if y'all realize it, but we had, from, uh, of our graduating class, we had the top two students in their class at Holy Trinity. We praise God for that. But friends, it is easy to impress people outwardly with grades, with reputation, with excellence, while our souls can be bone dry. because we've set our eyes on our grades or our reputation or our girlfriend or our boyfriend. Soul care is the far most important thing you can do for yourself. It is the far most important thing if you desire to live a life to the glory of God. What's the solution? to firmly fix our eyes upon Jesus, to make Jesus Christ alone be the joy of our hearts. When you fix your eyes upon him and make him the joy and rejoicing of your heart, your soul won't wither, but it'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, and you'll find the kind of satisfaction that Jesus alone can offer. How do we apply this text? One is just a quick word on what this tells us about the Bible. When Hebrews 1.1 tells us long ago God spoke to us by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son in these last days, it is telling us that God has spoken a final word. It's similar to what Revelation says, not to add or take away from this book. If you are looking for some further word from God than what he has written in the scriptures, you are despising the word of Christ. If you believe you need speaking in tongues, if you believe you need some further revelation, you're forsaking what God has provided you in the scriptures. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son.
You and I don't need more revelation. We just need to read what's been given to us already. And then second, we need to be aware that in every one of us, as much as we may love Christ, there is still a longing for something else to satisfy us other than him. That's what sin is, is looking to other things to satisfy our souls. We need to consider how foolish it is that you and I spend so much of our days pursuing empty things, watching foolish things, engaging in frivolous things when we could be fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. We're going to sing this in a moment, but listen to this, the fourth stanza of hymn 345, Glorious things of thee are spoken. Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. In other words, if I'm a member of the church, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Let's pray. God, eh, we, at least for most of us, we love Christ. And yet, Like the Hebrews, like the author of the hymn we sang a few minutes ago, we are prone to wander, prone to look to other things in hopes that they can satisfy. Let us be fully convinced in our heart that solid joys and lasting treasure, none but 